Hey everybody and welcome to the very first episode of From Mississippi with Love, the world's only podcast about Mississippi art, literature, music, etc. I actually have no idea if that claim is true, but today we're going to be talking about William Faulkner's novel As I Lay Dying. My very special guest Laura Wilson, who is getting her PhD in English at the University of Mississippi and don't you know it, she happens to be a Faulkner specialist. So we sat down for a chat, um, which I hope y'all will find enlightening, entertaining, etc. I do want to apologize real quick right off the bat for a couple of audio issues that we encountered during our Skype call. I've done my best to mediate those, but I appreciate your patience and forgiveness as I figure out the art of podcasting. Oh, yeah, and the ending also got dropped a little bit. It ends on kind of an anarchic note, but, uh, ah, I liked it. I left it in. All right, I hope y'all enjoy. So, Laura, this is the moment you've always been waiting for and said I've read Faulkner and I'm willing to discuss it. Yes, I I do like thoroughly appreciate that unlike myself who moved Miles to study Faulkner, you moved Miles to get away from him. Yeah, well, and that's what I was telling my seminars that I moved 1,300 miles and then I was forced to read Faulkner, not while I was in Mississippi. <laughs> oh, it's escalated to the point where you're like, I'm in fact going to do a podcast about this. Yeah, I was like, kind of into it though. Yeah. Yeah, and so, okay, so I know, um, but where we're going to start is, uh, for the people at home, Laura, how did you find yourself in Mississippi? Because I don't think that's a southern accent that I detect. It isn't, no. Um, that's, you know, probably something I hear on the reg about three or four times a week mm-hmm. in various guises. Um, but so, um, I mean, Mr. Faulkner is the, the reason why I find myself here um, in in weather that's only just beginning to resemble the fall. Um, and, yeah, so I guess um, the kind of starting point would be uh around about age 15 um and i was interested that you um you know picked up as i lay dying and up the seminar text and all but i decided that i'm a glutton for punishment so i'll start off with the sound and the fury oh wow <laughs> as a as a um high schooler and didn't really think much of it um like knew it was complicated probably didn't grasp any of the story but felt like I was you know the the brightest in the English class for even having attempted this crazy novel so there wasn't a specific class that led you to it you just kind of like up and did it yeah so um I uh I was always kind of that um uh singled out kind of oddball of trying to get like extra reading recommendations and so on so I can't remember whether it was my request or my um, high school teachers um, kind of desire but somehow I ended up with a list of you know books that people should read kind of one of those documents so you know expand your reading age and all of this you know like you're not really um, we can tell that you're not feeling intellectually stretched enough by what we have going on um, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, hey, Laura, it's Animal Farm. And you're like, I get it, I get it, I get it. 
like uh you mean the animals aren't just like animals this is the allegory do what now so it was a bunch of you know um christy um read catch 22 a bunch of things and it came up there um and so that's like my first kind of memory of faulkner and then we get to the final year in my undergrad and there's a, a special author paper where you can kind of pick from a, a, a list of um, authors and uh, I ended up in a toss-up between Philip Roth and Faulkner because mm. I knew um, probably for around 17 or so that American lit was where my interests lie, um, as, as you probably well recall. Um, and hopefully I don't get too much kind of hate from the listeners for this, but I uh, can't stand Jane Austen, um, too many of the romantics. Mm. See, I love me a man I can fix. <laughs> I mean, you know, like if if, if I'm gonna go all the way all in, I'm definitely like still a Byron fan. All of that lakey stuff, you know, lonely as a cloud, not so much for me, and certainly not these Austinian heroines. Um, so apologies all, but um, <laughs> so we end up in this battle between Faulkner and Roth. I think. Well, one of them um, is conveniently dead, and therefore will never. Um, you know, write anything new while I'm working on the project is unlikely to come out in an interview at any stage and um, counteract my argument. Little did I know at this stage that Faulkner's probably the most um, curmudgeonly, um, what I mean, kind of um, the way he answers interview mm-hmm. questions is never transparent. So I didn't realize I was going to get someone who was so kind of obtuse when it comes to giving away uh, character symbolism. <laughs> Yeah, and wasn't he famously, well, like, not famously, but people would ask, hey, why do you keep reusing characters? And he's like, well, it's my book, so. (laughs) Basically, yeah, so, like, I can move them around where I want. They might be the same person, I don't know. Or, um, uh, you know, um, asking him kind of stuff like, why is it that this character detail doesn't follow? And he's just like, I'm sorry, I don't recall what you mean. Yeah, I mean, obviously before I started really getting into the um, down and dirty of it, I didn't realise. I mean, now I think maybe Philip Roth might have been uh, a tangle to get involved with. So we ended up reading most of the novels across the semester, and I wrote a a kind of, I guess the equivalent would be kind of an honours thesis or a capstone paper on uh, women and sexuality and gender um, across some of the big novels. So As They Lay Dying, Sanctuary. The Sound and the Fury, um, which became my master's uh, research topic too. Um, And then, yeah, just kind of took a punt in the PhD market and was like, hey, why not apply for, um, you know, a PhD at the the school or the town where this man, uh, you know, was born and lived and wrote about. Yeah, lo and behold, the the day before my 25th birthday, um, I... Uh, got the email from the director of graduate studies to say, hey, you know, come on in. How I find myself here. Yeah, well, that's great. And the rest is history, as they say. Choose your own adventure, I guess, is how most of my weeks feel. Like, if cry for Tuesday, turn to page nine. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. To finish the assignment but jeopardize your sleep schedule, turn to page 12. Exactly, yeah. Okay, great. So, um, as I lay dying, you said was you're not your first Verena Faulkner, but it was um, part of your uh, capstone honors thesis that you did. Um, Sound of the Fury, and then this one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, 
Alright, it was not as hard to read as I thought it was going to be, which I thought was interesting, because Faulkner had been built up during my undergrad as, like, dense, impenetrable, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and to a certain point it is, I'm not saying it's easy to read, but maybe it's because I had more training under my belt than I did in undergrad, but, um... There are a couple chapters with, like, streams of consciousness where you don't have a good sense of what's happening, but it was surprisingly understandable overall. Like, the prose itself wasn't that thorny, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think there are kind of a number of things at work in that. In So it's always the the foray that I will recommend to people. Oh, you're a folk scholar. I've never read any. What would you recommend? And As I Know Dying is always the, the one that I put forward because, as you kind of point out, it occupies this space where there are moments of experimentation, um, but it also is very readable, very manageable. Um, and I think part of the problem has to do with the way that we, in, in literature and, and from outside, we uh, mythologize Faulkner. I mean, Oxford mm-hmm. is kind of a, a living... Um, embodiment of that that we want Faulkner, we want our Faulkner to be this very experimental very difficult to read um high modernist mm-hmm. well yeah and because that makes him special exactly while still being um a southerner and so i um again my uh prior encounters to moving here with Faulkner were always in the banded into the group with Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all the the kind of high experimental stream of consciousness authors that come with it um and so we although i wouldn't say as i lay dying gets laid to the wayside because of that it certainly forms part of that group say of of earlier or later novels where people go well this isn't the faulkner that i know because they've been trained in that myth of of high experimentation yeah, and also, so, um, like, Quentin Compson, for example, and his kind of, like, recurring cast of characters aren't in this one, um, which surprised me. Because As I Lay Dying focuses on the Bundren family and their, like, quest to bury Addie Bundren. So maybe this one has that reputation as being lesser um, because, like you said, it's not as experimental, but also that it doesn't have his, like, recurring folks um, in it. So... I mean, I think the novel's set in Yachna Patafa, but it's not, like, Jefferson or anything. Yeah, and I think you kind of, like, draw attention to an interesting thing, which is that it's certainly, you know, part of the uh, Yachna Patafa um, roll call, but it has a certain separation. So look at the, the map, the various maps that Faulkner created. There are uh, the... Uh, the down, you know, the the river, for instance, features. But you're right; the the Bundrens don't seem to have the same interrelated relationships that you see across uh, the Compson novels, or the Sartoris novels, or the Snopes novels. They are this is their odyssey, um, and and this is kind of where they live in a vacuum, almost. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's like part of the tension in the book, because you've got a couple of moments in the text of like country folk versus city folk when they go into town. So it seems that the Bundren's isolation is, like, intentional and also important, and the result is that we're just, like, watching this family go through this comedy of errors, almost, you know, with this, like, rotting corpse. Advertising leg, and I think, you know, the the different kind of transformations that take place, and the, the very, feels to me to be a very sensual novel, but in a, 
a very rugged way. So we're, you know, um, thinking about smells, thinking about decomposition. So not sensual, like sexy. No, like, <laughs> I, yeah, very kind of more of an attack. And, you know, because in, in the book, right, you know, the, the Bundren's almost, the, their odor comes before they do when they end situations um so i think that's something that faulkner's dealing with definitely yeah so okay when you wrote about this book you said you looked at it from like a gender perspective that's right um yeah so my my main fascination in um in as i lay dying um that carries through to this day um but is something that various other scholars have, have noticed too um is uh, the way in which Dewey Dell uh, obviously works through the novel in being almost the foil to uh, Addie's motherhood. That's kind of generational because I think you can see a lot of active resistance, but Addie doesn't enjoy motherhood. You know, she's not naturally maternal and the way in which that kind of passes on to um to dewey dell my kind of main interest is really how how um can be read through the rural lens so the fact that the um you know the the, the literal kind of insemination implantation yeah. dewey dell is compared to planting of cotton fields and um the floods that will wash away the crops kind of to me evokes the turn of the century method of uh, contraceptive method of douching for instance so looking at how sex education uh, operated in this time in rural parts of the south um, kind of contextualizes or did contextualize the work that I was doing um, on the novel interesting so that kind of leads me into something I talk want to talk about um which is like you mentioned the lands the kind of agriculture landscape place right and i hate to make this too much like an english seminar but you know place and space different things apparently i'm told but um as i lay dying as a novel is like very rooted in the landscape and the environment um and its sense of place and i think it's one of those things that it's like not a book about mississippi but it made me feel homesick when i read it just cuz it like radiates mississippiness right and so like maybe you could talk about why because i'm a total faulkner noob like i mentioned so i don't know like why that is and i know this is kind of an impossible task i've set you up with and i apologize but i'm just wondering how the novel's like rooted in place yeah um no i mean for sure i think rootedness becomes kind of a perfect word to apply in this situation because in faulkner i feel like you have multiple mississippis you have a nostalgia for an old southern way of life and these decaying aristocratic families in novels like The Sound and the Fury or Flags in the Dust. Um, and then you have your novels which contend more with kind of racial tensions like Light in August and Go Down Moses or the, the later novels as well which deal with kind of commercialism and, and new uh, kind of methods of capitalism in, in the Snopes, you know, this kind of laissez-faire and as I lay dying seems in its groundedness, I think, in its concern with the environment to evoke a sense of place that 
again becomes less mythologized or less nostalgic and grounds itself more in the real you know this is a man who was himself um even though it was a, a very strange persona that he took on but toward the end of his life you know um took a took on a farm on the outskirts of oxford you know proclaimed that he couldn't go to the nobel prize ceremony because he had too much farming to do and so this is a man who who knows the land that he's working with and because of all of the natural disasters and the rurality that kind of befall the Bundrens, I think we get an evocation of Mississippi that's beyond kind of maybe the hoop skirts and magnolias. Right. While he works against that tradition in, um, you know, novels like Absalom, Absalom is still uh, a South that, uh, you know, people, uh, readers invest in. And that's just not at work in as they dying because it's mississippi is not really idealized like at all in the book the bundrens are like poor and they smell bad and they're not wearing any shoes and like they make a lot of bad choices i mean i guess they're sympathetic in like how bad their decision making is like we want things to start getting better but if that were to happen it wouldn't be like because they made a good choice so in a way they're like not idealized people and it's not an idealized place because there's like mud and decay and I think it also, to a certain extent, you know, arguing about the level of, of humanization of the Bondrons, Faulkner's concentration on these characters, and as you say, like, do we sympathize, do we want what's best for them, or do we, uh, you know, with characters like Ants, for instance, think that they're their own undoing, that kind of, I think, says a lot about Faulkner's choice to take a stereotypically poor white family and give them these interior monologues and uh, multifaceted lives in a way that, you know, you will hear people from outside the South say, mm-hmm. oh, you're from Mississippi, does that mean you don't wear shoes? You know, in this novel, and we see the, the pharmacist kind of citified, gentrified characters comment that way on, on Dewey Dell, but giving these characters voice and space also, to a certain extent, humanizes um, the, the poor white demographic of Mississippi. Right. Yeah, and that's something we kind of discussed in class, and that was awkward because, like, it was a bunch of people, like, from Massachusetts kind of sitting around and talking about, like, Mississippi experience, like, how rural Mississippians are, and I was like, oh, yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's definitely, um, it, because it is that type of South, you know, rural South or uh, mythologized South, you will still find, I, I would imagine, in classrooms, this divide between, well, all I have to work on is is stereotypes of the rural South. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, authors will have to confirm some of those stereotypes while at the same time providing narrative space. You can only imagine, really, um, you know, and they all have ringworm and... Yeah, yikes, 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 yikes. Okay, so, I mean, it was interesting, though, because like you said, Faulkner kind of makes this kind of class issue an issue, like you said, but at the same time, he does give them space, even though they're all deeply flawed characters. So it's like, how is he trying to represent the rural southerner? Because in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem great, but at the same time, he's giving them interiority and, like, their own POV chapters, and they're all complex people who are doing things, like, for a reason, but it just turns out very badly. Yeah, certainly, and I think the the main kind of um, scholarly work that I wanted to, to bring into the podcast is this kind of um, new mode of examining 
uh, Faulkner and other novelists around him through the lens of what um, critics are calling this rural modernity. So um, this is people like uh, Jolene Hubbs and uh, Benjamin Child, who uh, was a former PhD student here at, at the University of Mississippi, um, writing on what texts such as As I Lay Dying and other um, things like God's Little Acre by Erskine Coldwell, uh, but these rural novels about uh, yeoman farmers, white farmers, tenant farmers, what what they demonstrate about um, interactions with the modern world. So another thing that um, I really enjoy in the novel is how Faulkner shows you know, the the Bundrans coming to terms with going shopping, being welcome in stores, you know, having disposable money, um, the the fascination at the end, right, in the scene with the bananas and the new right. teeth, the um, Victrola gramophone, um, kind of how how commercial culture and how modernity finds its way into these rural locations that far too often we've we've made into a rural urban divide um Mm -hmm. and you know part of the reason is kind of contextually the the mechanization of farming at this time so the 20s and the 30s is you get a lot of displacement and you you see in the novel in various moments the ways in which either natural forces or modernizing forces overwhelm the bundrans and how they cope with their rural stake in in a modern world that moves much faster maybe than we might expect a rural life so this is like a moment that is happening in modern scholarship like we're starting to talk about kind of weakening the divide like you mentioned between like rural and urban yeah absolutely and and to do more and i think your kind of example in the the classroom of you know uh, stereotyping rural Mississippi demonstrates the, the the need for this work to still be done. Obviously, kind of um, Dr. Leanne Duck's work um, and others who have suggested that you know the South becomes this scapegoated region where the nation puts all of its uh, you know social ills, mm-hmm. and now scholars are doing more to actually you know recompensate or not quite the right word I'm looking for, but to kind of reevaluate how the South can be viewed as modern rather than pre-modern and agricultural or, you know, how it how it needs to be viewed more in in dialogue with these urban, uh, quote unquote, modern spaces rather than as uh, in direct contrast to them. So in bringing that sense into the critical conversation. We're getting really out of my expertise, but I like learning. I'm super excited to, uh, you know, be able to kind of chat Faulkner uh, with you now, but I'm, I'm still waiting for that, that uh, crossover when, you know, finally um, the, the two can meet. Although if you, <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're into him now, Faulkner does have um, a um, very, very early short story called Mayday, which you can find as a standalone book with beautiful illustrations done by Faulkner, which does tell the story of a knight called Sir Galwyn. I've literally never heard of it. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Um, so I, um, you know, I knew we were destined to be friends. I've often had the um, the germ in my mind to write a paper about um, Faulkner's use of um, knights. So, you know, I'm sure you know kind of um, 
the, the the myth of the southern aristocrat kind of does come from you know feudalism and the middle ages and knights and squires um and Faulkner loves this kind of imagery too so uh, I can't say that I recall any kind of knight imagery in As I Lay Dying but certainly um, The Sound and the Fury and, and in Mayday you have these kind of um, gentleman characters. I'm interested to see Faulkner's more aristocratic side in other books because this book is very like low down and dirty. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody's muddy and rotting. It is a book of, of decay and, and mud and grime and yeah. It's maybe why I liked it. Yeah. Because there's a lot of discussion of, like, the, you know, Addie Bundren as she's rotting in her coffin through, like, the various stages of humanity and inhumanity that a person goes through on the way to the gravesite over a ridiculous period of, like, eight or nine days. So that was fun for me. Kind of this, you know, it's a journey that they're not especially equipped to take. And, yeah. right, it's the, it's almost like Addie's last you know attempt to spite the family one well to spite ants one more time and and to disassociate herself from the family you know and and so i think yeah it's really interesting that they they follow through this dead woman's wishes despite being entirely you know unprepared for the whole thing so i want to close our faulkner sesh with one of my favorite quotes about the landscape um and here it is that's the one trouble with this country Everything, weather, all, hangs on too long, like our rivers, our land, opaque, slow, violent, shaping and creating the life of man in its implacable and brooding image. Yeah, so I have that, yeah. I mean, uh, that's also highlighted in my copy. Whoa! It's pink, which uh, way back in uh, my master's, and my note says, landscape mirroring the people. Yes, there you go, Byron. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's a uh, definitely like kind of a beautiful landscape. And I love the way that Faulkner's description is almost artistic in a way. Like there's a lot of descriptions where the it's almost like a, a landscape vista painting. Yeah. And you I mean, I, I uh, drove out to Water Valley this morning um, just to head to the bookstore and there'll be, you know, tracks of road where the road just stretches. It's just you and the fields. And sure, there's kind of some, you know, small houses here and there or, you know, billboards and so on. But you can it doesn't take long to drive back into the heart of the rural, even when you have this built up college town like Oxford um, in the center. Yeah, I'm always amazed how quickly you get out of Oxford. Yeah. Just, you know, a couple miles down the road where I used to live, you're so in the middle of nowhere, and you're like, I thought I just came from a college town with a university of 20,000 people, and it's like, oh, you did, you're just out of it now. Yeah, and I think that's something that Faulkner himself draws really good attention to, because obviously, as you probably know, if you if you drive to Taylor, you're essentially taking a similar route that Faulkner is describing in, in going to Frenchman's Bend in Sanctuary, and so it's still really interesting to me that despite being kind of 70, 80 years ago or more, um, it's still possible to see these gaps, you know, like sure, Oxford's a lot more built up and there's no train, uh, you know, line or whatever anymore, but that I can still go and do the same routes, I think demonstrates how much of a, a finger on the pulse of kind of place and space Faulkner really had with with Mississippi and where it was going yeah that's amazing I didn't know that was like a Faulknerian route yes yeah if you ever need to get out of town to go and see the local bootlegger oh fabulous 
I've got to go out and get myself some moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's one last thing I wanted to ask you because it's always mystified me a bit. So, the University of Mississippi Library, Faulkner quote on the wall. And it's to understand the world, you must first understand a place like Mississippi. So I'll give you, I guess, my surface layer reading of the quote. Um, and then I'll give you, I guess, like a another mind-blowing truth bomb. The surface layer would be that I think, again, it ties into this notion of the region, uh, the nation's region. So you won't understand the nation if you don't understand Mississippi because it's this, uh, you know, region in the in the country that's being kind of, you know, given the responsibility of, of taking on all of the nation's social ills and, you know, is considered backwards and last in kind of, you know, education and all these mm-hmm. other kind of categories. And so if you can understand the complexities of this place, then you will know the world more. And it's certainly a quote that does resonate with me because my own understanding of this author who I thought I had a pretty good grasp on, you know, having got a master's thesis based around his novels, I get here and I'm like, wow, I, I didn't really understand anything. The um, Or not necessarily I didn't understand anything, but gives you a sense of, um, you know, positionality. I understood a Faulkner that, and there's um, young scholars right now doing work on kind of um, the British reception or the European reception of Faulkner, which is very different, as I say. He's a American lit high modernist um, for the most part. Now, I guess my uh, my last kind of little truth bomb is we have absolutely no textual evidence that that was said by Faulkner. What? Wait, seriously? That it may have been said by, um, I think, either a film producer or a journalist, 40s or oh 50s, just in... Um, you know, and this is, I kind of love this about kind of archives and evidence and don't believe everything you read on the internet, like Abraham Lincoln kind of thing. And it's a wonderful quote. Like, I love seeing it and I'd happily get it on a shirt or a poster. But as soon as you start attributing it to Faulkner, you know, the Faulknerians among us are like, mm, mm, mm. Oh my God. Because it is like so prominent in the library. You know, I, I still definitely, as I, you know, I think I've shown, love to kind of analyze it on that level of, what does it mean to to treat Mississippi first and the world as wider? But yeah, on a Faulkner level, like that's the you know one of the things you need know is uh, we we don't believe that um, those words ever came from his oh, mouth. That's amazing. From Mississippi with love podcast exclusive, we're breaking down the almost library. We're gonna tear the institution down brick by brick. <laughs> I sure hope y'all enjoyed our first full-length inaugural episode of From Mississippi with Love. I appreciate y'all tuning in. Again, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Mississippi underscore pod. That's M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. And don't forget it. Big thanks to Laura Wilson, who is obviously the guest for this episode. Thanks, as always, to the Holy Ghost Electric Show for the use of their song, Let the Waters Rise. Next week, I'll be talking John Grisham with special guest Nick Wofford. Specifically, we're talking the movie A Time to Kill, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Matthew McConaughey and a bunch of sweaty courtroom lawyers. See y'all then.